It was earlier this year, I was at, um, I was in Missouri where my wife lived until we moved away to Northern California for most of her life. And I lived for most of my life. We were visiting some family and it was over at my brother-in-law's place and um, he's had a new little girl. We went down to his basement, which is the, one of the ultimate man caves if you know what that is, you go downstairs, it's ambient lighting, and he has a humongous TV console, every console that's ever been made for video games, um, thousands of games. He has his own database to keep track of them all. They're all arranged neatly on the shelves by different, different consoles, and we went down there, and he was showing us, you know, some things, how different things had been built and, and whatnot. But um, he had a new console. It was a Sony PlayStation. And now they do this thing called VR, virtual reality. And Sean and I decided to both try it out. Never tried out VR. Sean had one other time. And uh, it was funny to watch him. Uh, <laughs> You put that headset on and, and things are happening and your body starts reacting. <laughs> and it's, it's really quite amusing to watch another person. So Sean had this experience where he was going down uh, in a cage where they you know, lower you below the surface of the water and there are fish all around. And of course, at, towards the end, there's this shark that's coming at you and breaks off the cage door. And you know, of course, it all ends before the shark actually gets to you. But it makes you think that something's gonna happen. And so I decided to put the headset on. And I was in this, this racing game of sorts. It was like I was on a, a luge, but it was for the road. And of course I'm going downhill and you steer with your head. And you're having to avoid all these cars. And of course, never having done it before, I couldn't avoid all the cars. And when you're about to hit one, you have this sinking feeling in your stomach and in your mind that's like, oh no. Because it's so real to your mind that you just, it's as if it was happening, you know? And then you crash and you have a little bit of a brain sensation that was like, that was really horrible, but nothing actually happened. And you reset and you start going down the road again. It's very strange. But an immersive experience, but one that does not have any component of touch. There's no taste, no smell. You can hear, of course, and he had surround sound, so we could hear well. But you're missing at least three senses. And I think you're missing part of what could be a truly fully immersive experience. And I think we enjoy those other sensory inputs, sometimes more than others. Um, you know, sometimes things don't smell very good and that's, that's unpleasant, but, or they don't taste very good or they, they feel weird, but most of the time we enjoy all these other senses. In the Bible, we find a very immersive experience, a full sensory experience. 
one that VR pales in comparison to. And it's um, a story with several elements. And it's the sanctuary. You could see it. You could hear it. You could touch it. You could smell it. And in some cases, you could taste it. And everything about it was a lesson book. It's a lesson book that was not just relevant then, but is one that's relevant for our day. Hebrews 8.5 tells us this, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mount. You see, the Bible tells us that this sanctuary on earth was a copy, a shadow of heavenly things, which means it really points to a bigger picture of what God was trying to accomplish. In Hebrews 9.22, it tells us, and according to the law, most all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, and what it's referring to is of sin. One of the first things we learn is about the ministry of Christ. And it did not cease after his death, but it actually continued on. This is a living, active ministry that Christ continues in the heavenly sanctuary above. In all its horrifying brutality, Christ provided the much-needed blood to cover each and every one of our sins. And that blood had to be carried into the sanctuary above. Hebrews 9.23 tells us, Therefore it was necessary that copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And Jesus Christ is that better sacrifice. By studying both the Old and New Testament, I believe we get a deeper understanding of what the sanctuary service was all about. We continue on in Hebrews 9.24, it says, For Christ has not entered into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. As a sinner, you would bring your sacrifice to the sanctuary. And walking there could probably be a bit unnerving because as you're going there with the animal, everyone knew why you were approaching and there was some distance between the sanctuary and the camp. So you have to take this journey towards the sanctuary. And I can imagine it would probably be very shameful. Approaching around the outside, you would see curtains, linen curtains, white, between many different poles. The complex was about 100 feet long and 75 feet wide. Several materials were used to create the design of the sanctuary. You would have fine woven linen of the colors red, blue, and purple. Red, symbolic of sacrifice. Blue, symbolic of the law. Purple, symbolic of royalty. And these curtains, were, they had embroidery woven into them. And in, it was the design of an angel so what we're really seeing when we see all these different things are seeing a glimpse of heaven, a glimpse of God's throne. There was also a curtain <clears throat> over this first curtain of red, blue, and purple of goat's hair. And then there was another covering. It was of ram skin dyed red. 
And finally, there was a skin of an aquatic animal. And some people believe that to be different things. Some call it seal skins. Of course, if you read the King James, you're going to say it says badgers. Um, but it was um, either a seal or a seal skin or porpoise or dolphin, something like that. The interior walls had panels of wood. They were overlaid with gold. So when you're in this room, it appears to be a room of gold. You look up, you see the embroidery of the angels, but gold all around you. Imagine it was very beautiful. One of the first things we encounter is the courtyard. You see, no sacrifice was ever slain within the sanctuary, but the offerings were slain in the court, and the blood and flesh were carried within the sanctuary by the priest. There was only one entrance to the sanctuary. What can we learn about that? Well, the Bible tells us in John chapter 10, verse 9, speaking of Christ, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There is only one God who saves, and that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. All the work performed in the court was a type of the work here on earth. All the work performed in the first and second compartments of the sanctuary was a type of work done in heaven. See, Christ was slain on this earth, the courtyard of the cosmos, if you will. And that sacrifice was typically a lamb. So when Jesus was on this earth and just preparing to be baptized, and John says to the people all around, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, everyone there would have understood the implications because of the sanctuary service. The blood of that sacrifice was collected. Some would be applied to the horns of the altar. Sometimes it would be applied to the altar of incense inside. And if the sacrifice was offered for the entire congregation, the blood was carried into the sanctuary and sprinkled seven times before the veil. The sacrifice that had been slain, it was brought to the altar. And this altar was a hollow box made of acacia wood. It was about four and a half feet tall and seven and a half feet square, and it was overlaid with bronze. This is a picture of acacia wood. What does it look like the wood is doing? You don't see a picture? Really? Oh, you see a courtyard. We're lagging behind. Let me go back. There it is. Now what does it look like? It should look like it's bleeding, right? See, everything about the sanctuary was a lesson, even down to the very wood that they would use in their furniture. When this tree is cut, there is a red sap inside, and it appears like it's bleeding, pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. Well, inside you would find the altar of sacrifice, and blood would be applied to the horns of the altar and poured out at the base. The entire body of the whole burnt offering and the portions of the various offerings were burned upon this brazen altar. And if you could see over the top of it, it was grated. And it symbolized the final destruction of sin as Christ will use fire to cleanse the entire earth. This fire was initiated by God but it was to be kept continually burning by the priests. Now, as fires do, it created ashes. And while in priestly garments, the priest would place the ashes by the altar. 
However, the ashes would have to be taken to what the Bible refers to a clean place. And when this was done, the priest would change his garments and then take the ashes to a clean place. We see this in Leviticus 6, 10 through 11. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers and he shall put upon his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed on the altar and he shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Hebrews 2, 17 says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So while making intercession for us, Christ is wearing his priestly garments. But when sin is finally put to an end, the ashes are taken to a clean place, and the Bible says this. In Revelation 19, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, when Christ comes, it's not in priestly garments, but in kingly garments. The priestly garments are put away when the ashes are taken to a clean place. Malachi 4.3 tells us what those ashes are. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Those ashes, the Bible indicates, are the destruction of the wicked when Christ comes to cleanse the earth. Then there was the laver. The laver was between the altar and the entry of the holy place. It was also made of brass. The water of the laver was so the priests could wash their hands and feet before they entered the sanctuary. It was required to wash the hands and feet before they went near to the altar and burned fire by um, the Lord. If they did not wash beforehand, the penalty for doing so was death. So you better not forget to wash. John chapter three and verse five tells us, Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do we have to wash before we come to the Lord? Well, some other texts that could be looked up to reinforce this idea are Titus 3.5 and Ephesians 5.26, if you want to write those down. But the labor shows us that we need cleansing. And it represents baptism. When entering the holy place, there was a curtain. And this was similar to the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. But this curtain did not have cherubim embroidered in them. God's furniture did not move. Now, I have to give my wife a bit of a hard time because early in our marriage, as some ladies like to do, they like to rearrange the furniture. And I imprinted very quickly when the furniture was put in place I expected it to never, ever move. I think part of that is because I have poor eyesight, and if you're walking around at night, you want things to be in their place and know where they are. But then we moved into smaller and smaller places, and she couldn't ever rearrange the furniture. It might happen again now that we're in a bigger place, but God's furniture did not move. It was always in the same place. 
Walking into the sanctuary, you would find some furniture. On the south side, you would see the seven-branch candlestick. It was made of gold, beaten into shape by a workman's hammer. And in the same way, the Christian goes through the fire of affliction and is crafted into the likeness which beautifully reflects Christ. We're told in the Bible that these lamps were to burn continually, never to go out. And so the high priest trimmed them um, twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. In function, they provided light to the holy place, and it teaches us about Christ. Jesus said in John 8, 12, Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In the book of Revelation, we also see some elements of the sanctuary. And here John writes about golden lampstands. Revelation 1.12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Continuing in verse 13, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. Verse 20, And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Those seven lampstands are likened unto God's church throughout history. And of his church, Christ says the same thing about himself. In function, we are also to be a light to the world around us. Now, these lamps would have needed something to keep them burning. Do you know what that might be? They would have needed oil. So every morning and evening, the high priest trimmed the lamp and made sure that there was enough oil for the lamps to continually burn. Likewise, the oil for our lamps is provided in a gift to us by the Holy Spirit. And I would encourage everyone every morning and every evening to be seeking for a fresh supply of oil. The table of showbread, sometimes referred to as the bread of his presence, it was a table about three feet long, about two and a quarter feet wide, and about two and a quarter feet high. And it was located on the north side. It was overlaid with pure gold, because it was also made of acacia wood, and it had an ornamental crown around the top, around the perimeter. On the Sabbath day, the Levites would make 12 loaves of unleavened bread, and they would be placed hot in two stacks on the table. Now, during the week, they stayed on the table, and at the end of the week, it was eaten by the priests. These loaves are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, when he said that we are one bread and one body. Now, Jesus makes three statements about being the bread of life, which adds a little more detail about what this bread means. In John six forty five, he just plainly says, I am the bread of life. In John 6.35, though, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes on me shall never thirst. So we have a similar statement, but a bit expanded. And one of the lessons is that we are dependent on what God provides, our earthly and spiritual food. We're dependent on Christ for everything. On John 6.51, it says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And that bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Being provided hot on the Sabbath helps us realize that each Sabbath we have the ability to gain new and fresh insight from our Creator. And it helps sustain us throughout the week. 
Straight ahead as you walk in past the, the initial veil is the altar of incense. It was about one and a half feet square and three feet tall. And like the table of showbread, it was overlaid with pure gold and had a golden crown around the perimeter. It had a fire that was also to be kept burning continually. Incense was placed on the altar every morning and every evening. And it was a special incense. It was given under divine direction. So if anyone tried to imitate it, they were cut off from the camp. Only the high priest could place the incense on the altar. In Revelation 8.3, we see this. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints, with the golden altar which was before the throne. So we're here we're seeing a clue of what the incense has to do with. Revelation 8.4 says, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So this incense is like prayer. In Psalm 141 and verse 2, it says, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. But remember, this is not just any incense. It's a special incense. It's one of a kind. And in fact, the Bible refers to it many times as sweet incense, and it represents the ministry of Christ on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Are you thankful for the intercession of Christ on your behalf? I am. I want to share um, a couple of um, paragraphs that was adapted from a book called A Cross and His Shadow, which is about the sanctuary. So I, I think it really beautifully um, talks about what this um, emblem means. It says, the type was beautiful, but the anti-type far surpasses the type. In the heavenly sanctuary, there is an inexhaustible supply of Christ's righteousness. In the type, the incense was always ascending, typifying that any time, day or night, when struggling soul cries out for help or gives thanks and praise for help received, his prayer is heard. In the morning, as the duties of the day seem more than human strength can bear, the burdened soul can remember that in the type, a fresh supply of incense was placed on the altar each morning. And from out the anti-typical heavenly sanctuary, help will come for the day to the one who claims divine help in the name of Jesus. In the evening, as we review the work of the day and find it marred by sin, there is blessed comfort as we kneel confessing our sins to know that in heaven the fragrant incense of Christ's righteousness will be added to our prayers is in the type the cloud of incense shielded the priest. So Christ's righteousness will cover the mistakes of the day and the Father looking upon us will behold only the spotless robe of Christ's righteousness. If we realized more fully the privilege of prayer, we would often say, I will greatly with the prophet rejoice in the Lord, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This incense is a beautiful symbol of what Christ does on our behalf. The last piece of furniture that was beyond the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. It was also a golden box made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. It was about three and a three quarters feet long, about two and a quarter feet wide, and about two and a quarter feet tall. It was also had a golden crown around the top of the perimeter. Also on the top, you would see two angels bowing their heads called the covering cherub. These were attended 
Uh, these were angels that attended to the throne of God. They would be on either side. And in the center of this, if you could walk in, and you couldn't because you weren't the high priest and he could only go in uh, once a year, but if you could enter in, you would see the visible presence of God between the angels in a bright light referred to as the Shekinah glory. And so this ark, this box, is really essentially a picture of God's throne. The dimensions of this holy place that the box was in was a complete cube, um, all three dimensions the same. And the only other thing that I can think of in the Bible that is the same dimensions, or at least the same, same shape, a complete cube, would be the New Jerusalem. So the top covering which concealed the contents was called the mercy seat. And mercy is a character of God that you'll find over and over in scripture. Exodus 34, 6, while speaking on Mount Sinai, says this, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Verse seven, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Are you glad for God's mercy this morning? You know, it's something that we're supposed to practice as well. I was raised in a strict home and... um, So mercy is probably not a quality that comes naturally to me. I probably err on the other side of justice. And I can see that a little bit in my oldest son uh, who takes after me that way. He's he's the third parent in our home. Uh, The exactor of justice. Whoops, I did what Chris did once upon a time. Let's restart that. Micah 6.8 tells us that we are to do justice, certainly, but it also tells us something else. It tells us that we are to love something. Do you know what that is? Love, mercy. Do you love mercy? Do you love being merciful? Do you practice both justice and mercy in your home? I hope that you do. Now, this box under the lid, if you could lift it up, you would see three things. I think we're lagging a little bit behind. You would see Aaron's rod that budded. You would see a bowl of manna, and you would see the Ten Commandments. All three elements uh, that are in that box are articles of what I like to call articles of remembrance. Aaron's rod uh, was a reminder to the people of the importance of recognizing God's choice. God had selected Aaron to be the high priest to represent himself before the people. And the people who rebelled uh, were swallowed up by the earth. But Aaron was God's choice. And so the people needed to respect that. The bull of manna was a reminder of God's miraculous provision for 40 years in the wilderness. But it was also a, a reminder of God's deliverance, not just from Egypt, but ultimately from sin. And the last article, the Ten Commandments, they are a reminder that points us that God is the creator of all things and we should worship him as God because he is the creator. 
You see, everything about the sanctuary, down to the, all the minutest details, they all pointed to some aspect of Jesus Christ. His ministry on our behalf, his work to save us from sin. Howard Carter had been working in Egypt since he was 17 years old. But it would be another 31 years before he was famous. At first, it was just a simple step that he excavated away. But then he found walls and seals. Some rooms he could tell had been raided by grave robbers and resealed. But he kept pursuing, hoping that there would be something that he could discover until he came upon a room and he found that the seal on this room had not been broken. So as they made a way to get into the room or at least a, l a little hole, he stuck a candle in and his eyes would try to acclimate to the light of the room, but it was hard. He couldn't, he couldn't really any s see anything very quickly. And of course, the room is airing out and, you know, affecting his candle. But finally, his eyes adjusted and he was silent for many moments. And his benefactor, who was funding the operation, asked him, Howard, can you see anything? And he said this, Yes, wonderful things. What did he see? He saw a room full of gold. You see, Howard Carter had discovered the tomb of King Tutankhamun, King Tut. There were actually many rooms of gold discovered. You see, the Bible also teaches us about a room of gold. Everywhere you looked, you would see gold. But in that room, we do not find a dead Egyptian king, but a living king of kings and lord of lords, ministering on our behalves, doing his best to save us from sin. His rooms are full of more than just gold. They're full of wonderful things, precious lessons that teach us about the plan of salvation. Psalm 77, 13 says this, Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? God's way is in the sanctuary. His way of love. You see, it's a real story, and it's much better than VR. It's the interactive story of Jesus. I pray that as we go through this, you would take some time at home to also study the sanctuary. I know for me personally, I have three books on my list that I haven't gotten to yet, all about the sanctuary, because I think this is a very important topic to be studying. And as we go through the next several weeks, we will see many more um, elements and aspects of the sanctuary and its different services and what they teach us about Jesus Christ.